Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. Actually, I'm not Dean Linky. This is Jason Cutton, ECNL Boys Commissioner, and we thought for this edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, we would flip the table on Dean and interview him. Dean has been a U.S. soccer ambassador since 1989 and a soccer broadcaster since 1996. And we're thankful to have him as part of the ECNL team and as host of our podcast and other events. So we'll hear Dean Linky's story after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. As mentioned earlier, we are turning the table today, and I get the opportunity to interview the man himself, the legend, our host of the ECNL podcast, Dean Linky. Dean Linky has been around the game of soccer since the late 80s, and has been calling soccer and other sports since 1996. He joined U.S. Soccer in 1989 as an intern and went on to serve as the junior press officer for the 1991 U.S. Women's World Championship team, and then the senior press officer for the 1992 U.S. Olympic men's team and the 1994 U.S. World Cup men's team. Following the World Cup, Dean served as the first ever director of communications for Major League Soccer before joining the Colorado Rapids in 1996 as the team's vice president and original TV play-by-play voice. After three years with the Rapids, Dean moved to North Carolina, where he has, simply put, become the legend in broadcasting. Play-by-play for the North Carolina Courage and North Carolina FC, college soccer broadcasting for Fox Soccer and Big Ten Network longtime voice of the then-named NSCAA College Game of the Week on Fox, the unofficial official voice of the United Soccer Coaches for over 15 years. He calls field hockey, volleyball, track and field, cross-country, basketball, gymnastics, swimming, lacrosse, tennis, softball, baseball, wrestling, water polo, fishing, and rowing. Which leads me to wonder, Dean, what is it that you have against curling? Welcome to the show, and great honor to take up the reins here and interview Dean Lakey himself. Dean, welcome to the show. Really honored, Jason. I certainly enjoy hosting this podcast and appreciate you letting me be on the other side of the microphone. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Dean, illustrious career in the game, but what may have been the most interesting is despite the tremendous impact you've made on the game of soccer, you were a baseball, basketball, and football guy. So you grew up in Ohio, never played soccer, not even really in gym class from what you told me in the past. So give the listeners a little background here. How did soccer find Dean Linky after you successfully avoided it for so many years? (laughs) 
Yeah, I really do feel blessed. So I went to Ohio University. I felt like I was destined to go there. In fact, I didn't even remember applying, but my yearbook editor and teacher at this little Catholic school in Ohio sent in my stuff to Ohio University, Script School of Journalism, really good broadcast and journalism program. So next thing you know, I'm headed to Ohio U and I got engrossed. I started writing for the paper. I got a little radio show and created some great relationships with the professors who had an affiliation with the U.S. Olympic Committee, and they put my name in for an internship that would be held in the summer of my sophomore year in 1989, and I actually got picked by two governing bodies. One was canoe and kayak, Jason, and the other was U.S. soccer, and like you said, I was playing football, basketball, and baseball, but I figured at least soccer had a ball, so I said (laughs) yes to U.S. soccer, and if you think about 1989 and that time, I mean, it was just amazing. The U.S. team was getting ready to qualify for their first World Cup in 40 years. Anson was putting together the women's team. Alan Rothenberg was in the background getting ready to take over. And you just talk about being lucky. I was lucky and feel blessed ever since for what soccer has done for my life and for my family. I met my wife through soccer as well. So it's been very, very good to me. No doubt you definitely joined U.S. soccer at arguably one of the most interesting times in the game's history in this country. But most impressively, you dove right into some major moments in the game's development, not knowing that you'd play probably keynote roles in those major uh, milestones in the game. Take us back a little bit. What stands out about your earliest days with U.S. soccer? What What are the fondest memories? Yeah, so the first story I had to write was about Desmond Armstrong, who was one of just a handful of African-Americans playing on the team. You know, he and Jimmy Banks, and he also was a wonderful artist, and we tied that in, and a true Christian, so I really enjoyed getting to know him. And during that time, they were starting to look at Bora Militinovic from the outside, so I found that very interesting as well, just knowing that, you know, with the 94 World Cup coming, they were looking to bring in an international coach, but for me, really, the tipping point was being sent out to Santa Barbara for one of the original training camps with Anson Dorrance and that star-studded 91 team, and again, I didn't play soccer, but I felt like I did have an eye for great athletes, and knowing that I wanted to be a great athlete and wasn't exactly one like you were, Jason. I loved being around them. And Anson held a meeting with the team, you know, and in that room is Michelle Akers and Karen Jennings and April Heinrichs and Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Julie Foudy and Shannon Higgins and Lori Henry and Lyndon Hamilton and Brandy Chastain. I mean, just incredible superstars. And Anson gives this speech where he basically says, all right, today, We're going to work so hard that we're going to turn our intestines into diamonds. And my jaw just dropped. He motivated me so much to want to be great at the game. That was really one of my best memories. And ever since that moment, it's been soccer, you know, all day, every day, pretty much. And and one that I'll never forget. Ironically, I went on to work with Anson a ton. I've called games with him back in the WSA days. I called his games, including this year for UNC Chapel Hill. And I live in Chapel Hill, so it's kind of crazy how the world moves. You know, it's it's really smaller than you think. But that moment was pretty special. And nobody gets you fired up the way Anson Dorrance does, right? I mean, he's one of the all-time greatest coaches, any gender, any sport of all time. And that was a special moment for me, just a sophomore in college that didn't know much about the sport. But I knew that if I worked hard enough, I could turn my intestines into diamonds. And that was good enough for me. Not not hard to see why Anson has produced winners over all these years. That's for sure. 
So I'm going to ask you a selfish question here because I'm uh, I grew up in Jersey, so I'm a Jersey boy. 1994 World Cup. I was a young kid, but my my heroes, Tab Ramos, John Harks, Miola, those guys were they were all doing their thing at the time. So, you know, senior press officer, you traveled around the world with Bora Molotinovich and those guys. I can only imagine the stories. But if, if you can, just share one story about one of the Jersey boys for me, if you can. Any, any one or two stories, anything that you think was, uh, was the most interesting at that time? Yeah, I love all three of them. You know, John Harks was famous for, you know, I, I felt like, and I think it was good, actually, that I didn't know much about soccer. And John Harks is tied to this story. I felt like we had to be over accessible. I felt like, you know, if you were the smallest newspaper or the biggest newspaper, whether it was the New York Times or you were the Roanoke Gazette, I felt like if you wanted to talk to one of those guys like Tony Miola or John Harks or, or Tab Ramos, you were going to be able to talk to them. I was going to make sure of that. And to be fair, I feel like I would still be that way to this day where it's totally different. You know, U.S. soccer is up way on this pedestal, and I totally understand it. They've they've earned that, but I still feel like you've got to do your part to be an ambassador for the sport. But John Harks, I always carried around this briefcase with all my notes and I had two different pagers and I had the big old phones that were gigantic. Jason, you know, you remember those huge old phones as well. And I was accessible 24 hours a day and John Harks routinely would take my briefcase and hide it somewhere. And he was always the one that did that. You know, meanwhile, Tab Ramos, I knew instantly that this guy is special and I still, when I do the rotary circuit, people ask me who's the greatest player that I was ever around. It's hard for me not to put Tab Ramos there. And then when people ask me who my favorite player was, it's hard for me not to say Tony Miola because going back to the notion of being accessible, anything I wanted from Tony Miola, who is one of the true icons of the sport and remains a great ambassador for the sport he said yes, and he still says yes. I have him on my other podcast as well. He probably would be happy to come on this podcast. So the fact that all three of them in their own way wrapped their arms around me in a big way and made me feel part of the team, I, I love those guys. And, you know, coming from Jersey, Kearney, Soccer Town, USA, I still say their names when I call a Rutgers game because Michael Neal, the Rutgers women's soccer coaches, is from Kearney as well. All three of them I consider great friends. I talk to John a lot and I call his games now because he plays North Carolina FC and Tony Miola, he's uh, one of my good friends. Yeah, no, those guys were uh, certainly inspirations for myself and many others. I, I, I fondly remember going to the first uh, Metro Stars game ever as a young kid and had a chance to, to kind of train and get involved with them a little bit later in life. But it was, it was just certainly uh, for me to, to see that 94 World Cup come to the U.S., I can only imagine how exciting it was for you to be on that in the inner circle, really, with those guys, uh, which leads me kind of to the, to the next part of your, your life here, though, where you got into the broadcast and you got into the booth. You put the microphone in front of you here. Uh, big change of pace, I'm sure, but a passion and, and certainly something that ignited for you. In 1996, you got started in broadcasting while with the, the Colorado Rapids. Um, but I always think back on my own memories and my own development, whether it be as a soccer player, a businessman, whatever, and I, I have some clear memories of when I knew something was for me, you know, whether it was playing or, or kind of pursuing the business end of soccer. Did you have that same type of moment with broadcasting? Yeah. And to be fair, I went to college to be a broadcaster. And what I decided to do along the way is I decided to hedge a little bit. I did not want to, with all due respect to a little small town in Alabama, I didn't want to go to a little TV station and, you know, make pennies and, grind it out. And so I felt like if I had a public relations degree to go with it, there might be some balance where I also could write 
And then I realized quickly with U.S. soccer, particularly in the early days, a lot of them were like me. They didn't know much about it, it's particularly the editors that were sending out people to say, hey, you better pay attention to the 91 team that's going over to China or pay attention to the 92 Olympic team led by Lothar Osiander, who when you look at that team with Alexi Lalas and Brad Frito and Kobe Jones. And, and by the way, I felt like I had a front row seat to Alexi kind of seizing the moment because at that time he was growing out his hair. He was growing the beard. Kobe Jones was doing the dreadlocks and Maybe they did it on purpose. Maybe they didn't, but they definitely knew what they were doing and they knew what was ahead of them. And to be able to have that seat to watch them do all of that, then go out and perform was huge. But along the way, the cameras would show up, Jason, and they wouldn't even send a reporter. So in many ways, I was already a broadcaster because I would just grab the microphone and I would interview Alexi Lalas and Tony Miola and John Harks and Roy Weggerly and Brad Frito and Thomas Dooley and Ernie Stewart and Eric Winalda. And I know I'm name dropping, but it was fun to be around the best of the best, which I think gave me a pretty good eye for what it takes to, to know what is good soccer and what's not good soccer, right? So I'm already kind of sort of getting that fix, right? Because I'm doing all these interviews. I'm emceeing all these press conferences, massive press conferences for the U.S. team all over the world, really. Everywhere we went, I would run them. So in many ways, I'm kind of a mini broadcaster, right? Without being on TV, but I have the microphone in front of me. So it was a natural progression. And then when I went to Major League Soccer, for all 10 teams, they would send me out. I would run that press conference. When they announced the signing of Tab Ramos and Jorge Campos as the original players in New York City, I ran that. And then the last team name was Colorado. And I knew if I went there, I would only go there to help if I could be a broadcaster. So I kind of got to call my own shot. So I was either going to stink and they're going to get rid of me or I was going to do okay and get going on this broadcasting. And I... I did well enough where it worked out and then moved to North Carolina and started calling other sports as well. And so I kind of called my own shot, Jason, and knew when I got in there that uh, it was going to be incredible. I'll never forget it. My first game was at Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium against the Wiz or the Wizards, whatever they were known as back in the day. And the biggest thing was I didn't realize that I had people talking to me the whole time while I was talking. So that adjustment on the fly, you know, like you're calling a game and they're telling me, hey, we're getting ready to go to break or we're bringing in this element. And so I had to learn on the fly what it takes to be a play-by-play -play guy, but loved every second of it. Well, this is fun. We're going to keep this going. We're going to take a short break first. We are here with Dean Linky. I'm, I'm interviewing the man himself. We've turned the tables here on the Breaking Line, the UCL podcast. We'll be right back. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. We are back here with the ECNL podcast, Breaking the Line. I am Jason Cutney, the boys' ECNL commissioner. 
I get the opportunity today to interview our host, Dean Lanky. So we've just before the break, we went into a little bit of the background here on Dean's early days in soccer, how he initially got into the game that he didn't love so much when he was born. For some reason, we still, still uh, we'll get over that at some point here in the call. But I do think we need to talk a little bit more about Anson Dorrance. Right? And, and Dean has a lot of experience with Anson. He was in the inner circle in the earliest days of U.S. soccer with the best teams that we've really ever had, I think, in, in my opinion, anyway, on the women's side. And Anson's a big part of that. And, uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity a few years back to get to know Anton. He's been a, a, certainly a mentor for me and just a great guy. Everyone knows that he's certainly very successful in the game. But, Dean, you, you moved with your wife and your – I think was, you only had your first son at that time, maybe when you moved back to Chapel Hill. I, I could be wrong on that. But you landed a job with Tar Heel Sports. Before long, you were calling games for UNC soccer. But obviously, that wasn't your first experience with Anson. So when you think of soccer in this country, you think of UNC women's soccer and you think of Anson, you've been in there. What, what is it about Anson that breeds success? Well, first thing, he is actually genuine and he has time for everybody. And he's a man that doesn't necessarily have to have time for everybody, but I've witnessed it. I witnessed it back in 91. I witnessed it when I moved to Chapel Hill in 99, and I feel like I've witnessed it more and more now as he's 70 years old, where I can pick up the phone anytime, and he always answers, yo, Dean, and always has time for me to this day. I've been working on a project with him called Vision of a Champion podcast that I think is one of the best podcasts out there with some of the most amazing athletes to ever play the game on the women's side that open up more than they ever have because of Anson. I mean, how many people get Tobin Heath to really truly open up and even Carly Lloyd? Well, Anson does. He just has that ability for people to open up and give their best he made me want to be the best press officer I could possibly be. And he probably didn't even know who I was sitting in the room. We joke about that because now that I work with him, you know, on this podcast and, and more closely, I joke about the fact that he didn't even know that I was there in 91 and that he was the true spirit of it. But I think because he's so genuine, I think because when you talk to him, he actually listens to you and the players respond to that. I think the fact that he's not afraid to throw out that competitive cauldron and challenge these women to go at it against each other, to make themselves better against each other and grow as a family. I think for all of those reasons, he's been the most successful coach, any gender, any sport of all time. And I'm really, really honored to, to call him a friend. And I'm, I'm delighted that our relationship is even better than it's ever been as you know, he's, you know, he can walk off into the sunset any day. And I feel like he'll be somebody that I can always call and ask a question to, or, you know, lean on for guidance. And I, I treasure that. Well, he certainly has a way about him. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything you just said from my very, you know, far less experience with Anson. I wish I had as much as you had with Anson, because every time I got to talk to him, I felt like I was a smarter person coming out of those conversations. And and ready to kind of run through that brick wall for him. You know, and I wasn't even playing for him at the time. So I can only imagine being in there and, and what those players experienced. Uh, I'm going to turn it to a, a kind of a funny story, an interesting story that I heard about you, Dean. I need some clarity here. I don't understand. You, we talked before about the, uh, the the phones that we had back in the day. They weren't the, the slick cell phones that we had today where a slip of the thumb could hang up on somebody. But you did hang up on somebody, Dean. And, and not just somebody. You hung up on President Bill Clinton I got to understand how did it happen? What was the context? Give us something here. 
Yeah, you've definitely done your research. Uh, I appreciate that. So obviously being the press officer, that 94 team was really, really special. I remember being on the field when we beat Columbia, which of course, uh, you know, there are many stories, side stories that you can go in that game. Of course, you know, the disappointment with Columbia, of course, the heartbreak with Mr. Escobar, the Marcelo Balboa bicycle kick that just missed Tony Miola running around with the flag and Alexi Lalas draped in the flag. And anyway, by getting that win and then the extra point, we made it to the second round. First time ever USA had made it out of the first round. They'd only been in that other world cup way back in 1950 and then 1990. And now we're going to play on the 4th of July against Brazil uh, at Stanford in front of a packed stadium. And the public relation folks arranged for President Clinton to talk to the entire team the night before the game in a room with the ESPN cameras rolling and everything else. And as the press officer, it was my job to answer the phone and properly put it on the speaker phone so we could be rolling and hear from the President of the United States. And when I answered, I didn't expect President Clinton to say, how you doing, Dean? And just him saying, Dean, like made me tremble. I mean, I completely melted, you know, completely felt the pressure. And I said, hang on, you know, I'm going to put you on speakerphone. And he actually did say something like, okay, I hope you don't have any trouble with that. Like kind of joking with me. Um, and that added more pressure. And sure enough, you, you get where this is going. As I went to put it on speaker, of course, I hit the wrong button and just, and it's dead. And the place roared. And it's funny, you mentioned John Harks and Tony Miola. And as my mom would say, bless their heart, because Tony Miola was the captain. And when he called back, Tony Miola stepped up. He could see me white as a ghost, because at the end of the day, I still just wanted to do right. And I still was just a youngster. You know, I'm only 24 years old. And I looked up to all these guys, and they could have easily buried me. But Tony, to his credit, and we still talk about this, when President called back, he actually said, President, sir, I'm so sorry. That was John Hart's playing a joke on you. <laughs> so he actually, he threw his buddy under the bus instead of me. You're not surprised by any of that, are you? That's no, I, no not at all. I mean, that's, that's so, the way we are, though, in Jersey. We, we breed ourselves to be, uh, to be always looking for the, the, the sneaky move, I think. <laughs> Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, I don't know, Dean, but that's, that's the way we're raised there. <laughs> so you... Uh, you definitely did your job in answering the call. You then hung up on him. You, you carried it forward, though, and, and look, you've, you've kind of taken the game, really, in some respects. You've taken it through some of the most major milestones we've had in this country, and, and you've actively contributed in those milestones. You've watched the games. You've commentated on them. You've written about them. You've done everything, and there's been just so many games. But being that you weren't a soccer guy from birth, you know, you've kind of fallen in love with the game. And, and it continues to me. I think well, the thing that has always stood out to me about you, Dean, is just your energy. You have such an amazing energy about you. And that, that aura is, it's, it just kind of overwhelms the people that are around you in a great way. But what drives you forward in the game? What, what continues to give you that amazing energy? Because it certainly doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Uh, I love that question. And in its simplest form, this sport has given me my entire life. It gave me my wife, who, by the way, worked three doors down from Sunil Galati. So they were up in Century City. I was down in Mission Viejo, Laguna Beach, living this incredible life. Like I get back from the Olympics, which was wild. The US team 
We had this drama with Steve Snow, which is a whole other story. He didn't start the first game. And actually, that game was played before the opening ceremony. So the first event was USA versus Italy. And we lost 1-0 because Lothar benched Steve Snow. And that was a big story. I had done a media guide forecast for Barcelona snow right so i definitely was cheesing it up with with the whole thing that's just kind of one side story and then i get back and they say they call me in in chicago and say hey we're going to send you to california for three years to be the press officer you're going to live in orange county and again i just wanted to pinch myself like you can't believe that this is happening and part of my job was to go up once a month or every other month to visit with Sunil and Alan Rothenberg and just give them updates on how things are going with the media and marketing and everything else with Bora uh, as they built the, the training center in Mission Viejo. And I meet this woman, Leah Pavao, three doors down from Sunil Galati, who was the protocol manager, spoke five languages. And I'm like, oh my God, Sunil, who is that? And Sunil's like, don't worry about it. You got no chance. So just forget about it. And anyway, 27 years later, she's been my wife and every anniversary, Sunil came to my wedding. I apologize for dropping names, but I always send him a note. Sunil, you're still wrong. You're still wrong. So, I mean, look at its core, this sport gave me my wife, gave me my life. And in many ways gave me my kids. And I was able to meet the sport at the highest level. So I got to walk through the door at the penthouse and didn't take it for granted then, and I don't take it granted today. I savor every moment. And part of that penthouse, quite frankly, and I don't mean to be a sycophant, but is working with you guys at the ECNL. You try to make it better. And if I can play just a tiny little role in helping you voice what you're doing, yeah, I, I, I approach that just like I approach calling the Colorado Rapids versus Dallas in the Western Conference Championships. I'm gonna call that the same way as I call the Big Ten Championships, or as I do the ECNL podcast, that's how much the sport has meant to me. It's giving me my wife, giving me my kids, giving me my entire life, and I'll never take it for granted. I am hoping, Jason, that I can do this for 20 more years. Like people say, Dean, are you ever going to walk away? I mean, I'm hoping that I don't say anything too stupid or too dumb that I can keep doing this because I love it. I love every second of it. No matter what level of it, I love soccer to its core because I've been blessed to be around the leaders, right, that have made it great, and I just happen to have the best seat in the house every time. Your, your love and passion for the game is, uh, it ekes out of you all the time in a very good way, and we'll, we'll use that powerful words there. We'll, we'll take a little break here. We'll be back with Ian Linky following this. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade. The studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. 
And we are back with Dean Linky. I'm Jason Cutney, the uh, host today, this week of the ECNL podcast, Breaking the Line. It's been my pleasure, my honor to, to sit here and interview the man, the legend, Dean Linky, the voice of soccer in many ways. Dean joined us this past year, crazy year, as we all know, to, to help us really breathe life into the ECNL in new ways. One of those ways has been a podcast. And we've had a lot of guests on the show Certainly interesting guests that all have a, they've impacted the game in a number of different ways, but the beauty of it is, is the people. And Dean was just talking about the people that he's met through the game of soccer, including his wife and how that, you know, his involvement with soccer has changed his life. I can relate to that in some ways. And, you know, I, I went to, to school at Duquesne University where I met my wife there. And, you know, it's just by nature, but being an athlete, she was an athlete as well. And we met each other. And long story short, we actually met each other in an ice bath. So, uh, you know, there you go, top that, Dean. But we, um, we seem to meet people in the game of soccer that make lasting impressions. I think Dean has certainly done that. So I got to ask you, Dean, when you, when you think back big picture, 30,000 feet, and you kind of stepped even out of all these, these uh, experiences that you had, who really was, for you, your mentor? Who, who led you? Who kind of, you know, built this, uh, this level of sophistication, this energy, this drive and passion for, for everything that you do, not just soccer, who instilled that in you? Yes, I, I love that question because I'm pretty certain I've asked that same question to probably more than 500 or so people having done so many games and so many podcasts. And I love asking about mentors and memories. So I appreciate this question for sure. I think for me, my grandma comes to mind right away. She passed away a long time ago, and I know she would have loved to see me calling games, but she challenged my brain all of the time, even as a youngster. And she made sure to get me out of my comfort zone at an early age. She would enter me in spelling bees, even in elementary school. And I must admit, I'm unabashed when I say I won a lot of them. But also when I did not win them, I was not a good loser. I'm still not a great loser, but she taught me so much about giving everything I have and everything I do. My dad, for sure, has to be the hardest working man I know he is the only college-educated person to come out of his family. He was an engineer for Champion Spark Plug in Toledo, but he also was an architect and would draw houses for a lot of people in our little Ohio town and only charge $15 an hour. He still does that, just a man with a, a great work ethic and a massive heart. Both my parents made sure I always worked hard. I think I was a paper boy for like 16 years, Jason, mowed lawns, always working and they both also made me get out of my comfort zone. They insisted that I play a musical instrument. This is something that few people know. And they had a friend who taught the accordion. So I did it. I, I didn't love it, but I did it. And I ended up winning a bunch of awards, traveling all over the country. I would play at churches and I can actually still play it. And I, I usually get it around, get it out around Christmas. So there's a there's an image you and Christian Lavers and the ECNL gang might not be able to shake me me playing the accordion, but, you know, really when I think about mentors and uh, I like to call them tipping points, I think the biggest tipping point for me that shaped me actually came in the eighth grade when I went to the Bowling Green State basketball camp. And I met these three dudes at the camp who went to Fremont St. Joe. It's a small little Catholic school, about 20 minutes from my hometown. And they were just the coolest, coolest kids, super nice, fun, but competitive. And I came home from that camp and told my parents that I wanted to go to school with these kids. And they said, well, first of all, you're not Catholic, Dean, and it's 20, 30 minutes away. 
And I said, I know, but I don't care. These are the kind of people that I want to be around. And again, this is the eighth grade. And, and you know what? My parents made it happen. And I kid you not, I was in all of their weddings. All three of them were in my wedding. And we still talk and get together every year. That was an important move for me because they were the right kind of people to be around with just great, great souls. I had a great teacher at St. Joe that got me into Ohio U, a great professor at Ohio U that helped me get the U.S. soccer internship, and then guidance from John Polis, Kevin Payne, Hank Steinbrecher, Sunil Galati, and especially Bill Nuttall at U.S. soccer really helped galvanize all of this newfound excitement I had for the sport of soccer. And I just try to, to keep on trucking, making sure that I, I put the maximum effort into every game, every podcast, every town hall, every opportunity. I try not to take any of them for granted and value every chance to promote the game from, as I said earlier, the best seat of the house. And I really thank my, my parents and my, my grandma for, for giving me that drive. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I can, again, I can relate to that in many different ways, but uh, also the same way as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rattle off some questions that you hear, Dean. So these are going to kind of go spitfire just one after the next. We'll try to keep each answer as short and as precise as possible, because we're just going to put you on the hot seat here. In no particular order, I've just assembled questions and I'm going to throw your way, see if I can uh, to get you, you, you either stump you, choke you up, do something. I don't know what's going to happen here, but we're just going to give the roll, a whirl here. So quickly, number one, scariest moment you ever commentated on in the game, anything that you've seen in the game. Well, the scariest moment around the game, I wasn't commenting on it, but it was when Tab Ramos took that elbow to the head against Brazil the day before I hung up on President Clinton. And then I remember Bora at halftime, like shaking Tab, saying, can you play? Can you play? And his skull was fractured. And he might have really not been the same player after that as well. That was definitely the scariest moment. As a broadcaster, every day is a little bit scary. I mean, I, a lot of people go to bed dreaming or having a nightmare about missing a test back in school. I dream about saying the wrong thing or, or offending somebody. So as a broadcaster, I always feel like you got to be careful. So really every time I step in, there's a little bit of nerves because you never want to say something wrong. The players feel that as well, right? Most inspirational moment you've ever seen in the game. Most inspirational. I always think about Michelle Akers in that 1999 world cup. She had that illness. It was hot. She, by the way, is without question, my favorite USA player of the, of all time. It's uh, I always say Michelle Akers when people say who was your, your favorite player, men or women. I just think she was an absolute beast could strike the ball like a man and just, just poured her heart into it. And uh, she's still my favorite and her giving every ounce that she had in that game and every game will always be an inspiration to me. Best place you visited through your uh, days with U.S. soccer? Wow, we had some fun trips with some great people. I, I think, uh, you know, my favorite trips for the U.S. team were to Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong, Japan. Monaco was awesome. Morocco was awesome. Barcelona for the Olympics. And I think the top, the top moment was being at Azteca a couple times in Mexico in front of 104,000 feverish fans. Hard to find a better atmosphere than that. Favorite book? Any book that's ever that's motivated you? 
Yeah, so Vision of a Champion by Anson Dorrance is my favorite book. And I've been able to break down every chapter with guests as well. So going back to Anson, Vision of a Champion is uh, one of the great all-time books. And he just did an audio version of it. If you ever get a chance to to read that, it's it's captivating. And last one here. Your dad, you mentioned before, is a, a mentor for you and, and kind of an inspirational figure in your life. What's your legacy that you leave behind? I know you still got a, a lot a lot ahead of you here in the game, but what's the legacy that you will leave behind to your kids through what you've done in the game and then to the general soccer population? Wow, really kind for you to ask that question because I don't I don't really look at myself as a, a man whose legacy is going to necessarily be remembered, but uh, you know, as you ask it, I hope people remember that I love this game because of the people who played it coached it and people who propped it up to such a high level. It's amazing where the game is today. And they knew that every game, every podcast, every speech, every convention banquet was important to me because I knew it was important to someone watching. And that always mattered to me, always does matter to me. And that I bought, I brought my best at every opportunity that uh, I loved every second of the ride still do. I never took it for granted, never will. And that I was always grateful to be able to do what I always wanted to do. And that will never be lost on me. So I hope that leaves a mark in some small way, Jason. Well, I, I, it's funny you say that. We we just had um, this past weekend, we had the ECNL Boys National Event in Arizona. And it was our first ever national selection game, which essentially for the listeners is an all-star game. So all the teams that are in that particular event, we pull their, their top player in some respects or one of their top players to come and participate on the night of day one of the event. And they come under the lights and they play. And the unique thing about the game is that that game takes place in the evening when no other games are taking place. So all the club teammates for the, these players that were identified and selected are coming out to watch. All the families, the spectators, college coaches, national team scouts, pro scouts, and we didn't know what to expect going into this particular game. It's the first one ever, right? The girls have done this before pre-COVID um, and just came out of COVID and ran their first one a couple of weekends ago. But for the boys, this was the first ever. And so we went into the event and I had the ability to speak to the players just about an hour and a half before kickoff, before the, the warmups really started. And I started thinking back on my own days and, and when I was, 16, 17, and, and had some opportunities to go overseas with these, uh, some of the U.S. soccer teams. And I, my first game that I was in front of a big crowd was at a little stadium in France. And there was probably five or 6,000 people at the stadium, um, enough to make you completely you know, out of your mind in terms of energy and excitement and nerves, and, and you have it. But I didn't know what the crowd was going to be like. All right? I just didn't know. We didn't, we, had no, we didn't sell tickets, right? So we didn't know who was going to show up. But I sat down and I spoke to the players before and they, you could just kind of see their excitement, their energy, their nerves were already starting to build. And I said to them, guys, you know, you're, no matter what you do here, you're going to go and play and you have to show that you can express yourselves in front of others, right? However many others there are. And I, I think I said at the time, there's going to be a big crowd here. And I didn't know that I was hoping there would be, of course, but sure enough, about 1400 people pulled in to watch these kids play which was unbelievable. And the atmosphere was, there was, it was just electric. There was a buzz and a buzz and a buzz. And after the game was over, we said to them, you know, you now have an experience. You've played in front of thousands of people. Right? You, you've had this opportunity to see what it feels like to, to hear the ooh when you make, you know, a, a great sack where the ball just swings wide and hear the goal celebrations and everything else. You now have to take that back 
to your teammates, right? You have to take that energy back. You have to help them through and, and see if you can get them to envision playing in front of 10, 20, 30,000 people. And if you can get your whole team to that point where they're all living that same dream on the field at the same time, you'll be successful. And I think, you know, the, the beauty of what you've done in the sport is that you've been able to call all these games and breathe life into these games in a new way. Because, you know, I think about Arlo White a lot of times. I go and I watch EPL games on the weekend. And without him calling the games, it's not the same. You know, and, and you have that same thing. You've, you've delivered that to the game and you've impacted the game in a way that others, you know, me as a player or as a, you know, a club director or now an ECNL commissioner, I can never impact the, the game in the same way that you have. And so it's really an honor to have you on here. And, and I think I'll, I'll leave with this, Dean. When I, you know, I've had the pleasure to get to know you primarily initially, at least through the breaking the line of the podcast here. And I can say that from the moment I met you, I did feel like we were old friends. You know, and, and in many ways, the first time I met Anson, I had the same exact experience. And I've learned in my life that the best leaders have that quality. And I, I hope that one day I will have that as well. But you all make people around you feel welcome, feel important, heard, valued, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it must be said that from all those things and much more, you're a legend in the game. You've impacted the game in unique ways. And many times people don't see all these ways. I'm starting to see them now. And, and you know, we certainly appreciate you being part of the ECNL family. I appreciate the opportunity to interview you here. This was, uh, for me, I was stepping out of my comfort zone in, in doing this and interviewing the legend himself. So I, I'll wait for the notes and how poorly I did afterward. But this was certainly an honor and an honor having you on the show. I, you know, I can't thank you enough for being part of this. And uh, I'll leave it to you to close this show. Well, I really appreciate that, Jason. And I'm definitely far from a legend. Lucky enough to cover a ton of legends and again as i mentioned earlier the best seat in the house something i'll never take for granted thanks for letting me tell a little bit about my story and guess what we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of breaking the line the ecnl podcast thanks for listening to breaking the line the ecnl podcast for more information on the ecnl visit us at www.theecnl.com and if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.